Today's Old Testament reading is from Genesis chapters 48 and 49. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you a fruitful and multiply you and make you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil blessed the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall become great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel, will pronounce blessings, saying, God, make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope, and I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. 
Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we, as the church, are the people who have been collected, who have been created, who have been called, who have been crafted by this word. I pray, Father, that your spirit would work in our hearts to, to open our, our eyes to the gospel, to your gospel message that we find here. Please, Father God, and may the words that follow be true to your intentions to this passage. And it's in Christ's name we pray, the one in whom all of God's promises find their fulfillment. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we, we looked at Genesis 35, and from there, the narrative of Genesis actually takes a turn, and, and what we find is, is more of a focus on the life of, of Joseph. And Jacob will continue to play a role, but he'll, he'll move more into the background. But not so here, because what we find here is the conclusion and the culmination of Jacob's life. And you might ask, why here, why is this episode of blessing so important? But if you look at Hebrews eleven twenty one, this is the one instance of Jacob's life that that author mentions when, when, when the author speaks of all of the great acts of faith from our Old Testament forebearers of old. The author of Hebrew writes, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And we find this amidst a chapter that's all about faith. We, we find a lot about faith here. We find out a lot about the deep trust by which Jacob blesses the next generation in this chapter of Hebrews. This chapter will tell us that faith both looks backwards and looks forwards. The author tells us that, the, that, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But the author also tells us that it's by faith that we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The author is telling us that faith looks forward to God's promises to things we have not yet seen, but faith also looks backwards, even to the creation of the world itself. Faith rests in God, it rests in what God has done in the past, and it also rests in what God will do in the future. Because God 
is God, because God has done these things in the past, because God will do these things in the future, we too, like Jacob, must bow down in worship and act in faith. However, but before we look at at Jacob and what he does, I think it's helpful to look at the opposite position. Again, Hebrews tells us that faith is a seeing and a trusting of God's work in the past and in the future, and, and so then in the present as well. But to really appreciate this, we need to ask ourselves, well, what would it mean to take God out of the equation and and lose completely the sense of God's work in the world. Because to fully understand the good news of this passage, we really do need to wrestle with what would it mean to lose God? And what would it mean to, to not have this Christian sense of faith that the author of Hebrews speaks of? Towards that end, I want to look at the the 20th century philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, and he he gives us a helpful and, and I think, very honest vision of what this lack, of what this loss would look like. In his Existentialism is a Humanism, Sartre says that, that the atheistic existentialism that he's promoting, well, it has to come to terms with the notion of abandonment. And what he means by this is that God does not exist, and we must bear the full weight, the full consequences of that assertion. Sartre is saying that there is no God, and he's also saying that the average atheist has not taken that truth to heart, that the average atheist is still clinging to truths that simply cannot be there if there is no God. If God does not exist, Sartre argues, quote, man is therefore without any support or help, condemned at all times to invent man. This for Sartre is what it means to be abandoned, to have no appeal whatsoever to God, and so to carry the complete weight of one's own existence on one's own shoulders. You become responsible for absolutely everything in your life. You have been abandoned by a God who never actually existed, and you are now burdened with the whole weight of your life. And Sartre goes on, and he makes this concrete for us. He he talks about an encounter that he had with a Christian minister during a prison camp, or in a prison camp, during World War II. And Sartre speaks about how this man, he he reflects on the circumstances of his life, circumstances such as the death of his father at an early age, uh, an end to a painful romantic relationship, failing and being dismissed from military training school. This man tells Sartre that all of these things work together to lead him into Christian ministry. This man had interpreted everything that had happened in light of God's plan and in light of God's orchestration. Sartre, however, argues that the man is simply deluded, that this man alone is responsible for who he is and what he has become. 
There's only the decisions that we make. There's no divine plan. There's no orchestration by God. And we have to shoulder and bear the weight of every decision that we make. Again, we are condemned at each and every moment, moment to invent ourselves. And this brings us to, to a final point from Sartre's proposal. He talks about the notion of despair. And despair for Sartre is the realization that we must limit ourselves to reckoning only with those things that depend on our will. Yes, we must invent ourselves, but we're still limited to the choices and actions that are actually in our power to undertake. For instance, we may wish to work for a just society, whatever we think that might be, but each of us is really just one person. It's our actions alone and, and not the actions of all of these other people that we're responsible for, that we can actually do. And so we have to limit our actions only to ourselves. And we're just one actor in a mess of, uh, of countless other actors. And realistically speaking, we ourselves aren't even consistent. We, we all fall short of the ethics of the morality that we put out there. And so Sartre tells us that there's also something else that we lose. We lose the traditional notion of, of hope. As Sartre writes of what he thinks would be best for his own country of France at the time, will collectivization ever be a reality? I have no idea. All I know is that I will do everything in my power to make it happen. Beyond that, I cannot count on anything. Sartre argues that the notion of traditional hope relies upon the plan and orchestration of a God who works in history. And without God, we just can't have this. This kind of hope, this kind of hope that springs from, from God who works things together as he sees fit, well, we can't have this without God. And so we have no reason that history will come together to work for anything good. In fact, if we're honest with ourselves, we have all the more reason from this perspective to think that things will not only go badly, but even get worse. Humans have more and more resources now than ever before to destroy, to instrumentalize, to exploit each other. And if we don't have God and we don't have a traditional notion of hope, for all these reasons, well, there's every reason to think that the future will be a very, very grim thing. As Sartre tells us, we should act without hope. Hope is not necessary to undertake anything. Sartre should be commended here. I mean, he's, he's really wrestling with what it means to be without God. We're abandoned. We have to bear the full weight of our existence in every single decision that we make. There's no divine plan, there's no orchestration, there's just our decisions. We are in despair. Our choices and actions, they're actually a very small thing, and we have no reason to think that they will actually work together to bring about something good, however we might want to define good. And very likely, they will not. Again, any traditional notion of hope or, or even what to hope for has been lost. And Sartre is right to point out that without God, we are abandoned to ourselves. 
Remember what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews says that it's by faith that we understand that God created the universe and orchestrates history as he sees fit. That God made us, that God guides us, that God loves us. And Sartre is right that without God, there is no true hope. Again, Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Our faith rests in God. Because God is powerful and good and wise, we can trust that God will bring about his promises and also that his promises are good for us. Sartre and the book of Hebrews are in perfect agreement here. Without God, though, we are abandoned and we are without hope. But why would Hebrews place such a strong emphasis on hope when explaining Jacob's blessings of Joseph's sons? Well, think about what's about to happen. Jacob's family has just moved to Egypt. Right now, they enjoy the favor of the Egyptian people. But this is about to change. The household of Jacob, the household of Israel, is about to experience 400 years of harsh Egyptian slavery. Working conditions will get worse and worse. Working demands will get worse and worse. And eventually, it's going to come to the point when the Pharaoh will decree that all of the male babies born to the Hebrew people should be killed immediately. This is what awaits Israel, four centuries of suffering. And 400 years, that's a very long time. Think about the year 1622 and how long ago that was from now. Often we can lose our faith in a very short time, but think about a trial that tests our faith for 400 years. But the book of Hebrews tells us another important thing about faith in chapter 11. Verses 13 through 16 say that those who have faith are exiles in this world, that they seek a better country, a better city, that they seek a true homeland that they never feel wholly settled in this life, that they don't expect too much from the kingdoms of this world. Yes, good can be done. Yes, good is often done. And we as the church should be working for good. We should be working for good in the cities in which we live. But we should also not be surprised when terrible things happen. And Sartre himself knew this to some extent. In her fascinating book at the Existentialist Cafe, Sarah Bakewell points out that the reason that Sartre and, and others embraced the philosophy that they did was because of what just happened. As the dust settled from World War II, Europe was in ruins, and the horrors of the concentration camps were revealed for all to see. Sartre and others, they wanted a new start. They wanted to believe that humanity didn't have to end up this way. They wanted to believe that humanity was able to make itself something different than what we were and had been. But if humanity was to make itself, then God, the supposed maker of humanity, well, he would have to be discarded. However, remember, Sartre himself had no hope that things actually would end up differently. Remember, this is Sartre's whole notion of despair. Like Hebrews, he too did not expect too much from the earthly city. 
Sartre despairs that he will ever find a true home in this world, but for him, this is the only city that could ever exist. There's no greater homeland to travel to. For him, simply to exist is to be in exile. But is this our only option? Must horrific and terrible and tragic events push us away from God? This is an important question. This is an extremely relevant question to Jacob and his household. Because again, they are on the cusp of 400 years of harsh bondage. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that yes, there is another option. If we can truly grasp that this is not our true home, and if we can have the assurance that God will work all things for good, that he will make all things right in the end. But this requires faith, and faith requires a truly great God. When Jacob first speaks about God in this passage, he calls God God Almighty. But notice how God uses his might. Look at the beginning of Jacob's blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob says, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. God Almighty gently stoops in his greatness to fellowship with Abraham and Isaac. God Almighty gently stoops in his greatness to shepherd Jacob all of his life, a life that has not been an easy one. God in his greatness gently stoops down to Jacob to redeem Jacob from evil. And it's important to note that many of these evils are evils that Jacob himself has worked. It is this God, the God of Jacob, to whom Jacob prays when he blesses these boys. Sartre says that we must take the whole weight of our life and our existence on our own shoulders. And this seems exhilarating, but can we, like Sartre, also see the abandonment here? If this is the case, how could we ever rest? How would we know that we've chosen the right school, the right job, the right spouse, the right place to live? How could we ever stop asking, what if I had done this, or what if I had done that? And if we fail, how could we not be absolutely and completely crushed? If this is true, how could we ever get out of bed in the morning? Because if we're condemned to invent ourselves, this does not free us up to make choices. It freezes us. It terrifies us. Because we know that we always could have made better decisions. If that's the case, then we will look at our lives and think, it could have been better and it should have been better. I just should have done better. I should have made better decisions. Not so Jacob. Jacob rests in the assurance that God has orchestrated his life. Jacob looks at his life, both the good and the bad, and he can say, What God, my good and wise shepherd, has done, well, this is what he has for me. And in this same truth, we also are called to rest. And this is often not an easy truth. This this struck me anew this week, reading several, several horrible stories in the news. I can only imagine what it would take for certain persons to cling to this truth people whose faith I adore and revere, 
And I say this with trepidation, but what other option do we have than this? If God is not there, if God is not shepherding us, why even get out of bed in the morning? Jacob's God is God Almighty. He's powerful to do all things, but he is also good. He's the good shepherd. He lovingly guides and has lovingly led Jacob all of his life. And interestingly, when Jacob speaks of his life to Pharaoh, he says the following. He says this, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. Again, Jacob's life has not been easy, and much of that has been his own fault. And we've looked at that over the last 10 weeks. We've looked at that in detail. But notice what Jacob calls this life, his time of sojourning. This place is not his true home, and despite these hardships, he still knows that God is his good shepherd. The hardness of his life has not pushed him away from God, but it's made him cling to God ever more closely. And that's the message that these children, that these two boys need to hear, because the next 400 years will bring them great, great evil. But God, their shepherd, will be with them. And there's some awareness of this evil, the fact that Israel is awaiting 400 years of bondage. Generations before, in, in Genesis 15, 13, God tells Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. God is God Almighty. He's the God who fellowships with us, who shepherds us, who redeems us from evil. And these are the foundational truths that these children need to know as they stand on the cusp of these 400 years. Because only a God like that, only a God who never abandons us, who gives us the assurance of hope, only a God like that can strengthen the heart of the sons of Jacob to face what's coming. But then why bless the younger child over the older? Both children receive the same blessing, but, but Jacob puts his right hand on the younger, on Ephraim. And Joseph's not happy about this. This displeases Joseph, and Joseph tries to switch his father's hand. But this is a lesson for Joseph. Because if anyone would be prone to forget that this life is a sojourn, that there will be evil days ahead in Egypt... Well, it's Joseph. Joseph has risen to great prominence, to great status in Egypt. He's second only to Pharaoh himself. And Joseph needs to remember that Egypt is not his home. He has to remember that he is made for a greater city. He has to remember that the ways of this world are not the ways of God and that soon the kingdom of Egypt will turn on the people of God. This is why I believe in Genesis 47, Jacob meets personally with Joseph, and he has him swear that he will take Jacob's body to Canaan, that it won't be buried in Egypt. Jacob wants Joseph to remember that Egypt is not his homeland. In Egypt, they are sojourners and they are strangers. And I also believe that's why Jacob says the following to Joseph after giving the boys the blessing. 
I have given to you rather than your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. This is actually the first portion of the promised land that's given, that's allotted to the sons of Jacob. And it's given to Joseph to remind Joseph, despite your success in Egypt, Egypt is not your home. The ways of the Egyptians are not the ways of God. God gives the greater blessing to the unexpected one. Because giving the greater blessing to the oldest, well, that was what was expected. That was the cultural convention in that area. But God works in a way that we don't expect. That doesn't mean that God is arbitrary. God is good and his actions are always good. But God's goodness is not constrained by our expectations. And Joseph is angered because this is not what he expects. But if God can't surprise us and frustrate us, we are not dealing with the true and living God. We're dealing with a figment of our imagination. Think about the, the relationship that we have with a teacher or with a mentor. We expect that person to come into our lives to, to correct us, to point out our errors. Well, how much more true should that be for our relationship with God? Because God calls all of us to account. God is God. He's wiser than we can ever imagine. And for that reason, he will surprise us and he will frustrate us. He will even tell us things that we'd rather not hear. And because God's goodness is so great, it's a goodness that surprises us. But we, like Joseph, can try to switch the hands of God and, and try to make God bless this over that. We try to force God's hands to bless this position on politics, on social things, on, on ethics, whatever we would want it to be. God bless this and not that. We want to be in control, but God is God and we are not. And just as a shepherd must often lead a sheep against its will for its good, so too must God lead us. Joseph learns the lesson. He understands this because Joseph has already seen God work in very surprising ways. What Joseph's brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. And so we find that Joseph learns the lesson here. As the author of Hebrews tells us in 11.22, By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. Neither will Joseph be buried in the land of Egypt. And this is an important message for us. The last few years have been a very, very difficult few years. We have the pandemic. We have social and political tensions that have come to a fever pitch. We have inflation. We have many scandals within the church itself. And even now, international politics seem to have changed overnight with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The world we're entering, it, it may be, or it may not be, a very different world than the one in which we lived in for the past few decades. We may be, or we may not be, experiencing a great shift. I did recently hear one person argue in an interview that we are entering in a technical revolution on par with what happened during the printing press. That may be the case, or it may not be the case. I, I don't know. 
But either way, we know that God is our good and mighty shepherd. And Joseph knew this. Joseph knew that the place of Israel in the land of Egypt was about to completely change. And Joseph actually was entering into a whole new world. But the change in political fortunes, it had no change in God and the plans that God had for his people. God had ordained all of these things before the foundation of the world, and again, he'd already revealed it to Abraham generations before. So when you think about ourselves, perhaps we find ourselves anxious about the surrounding culture's reception of the church, whatever that might look like. But if so, we have to ask ourselves the following questions. Is this our ultimate city and home? Like Joseph, we should work hard, hard for the good of the cities in which we live. But like Joseph, we know that we are strangers and sojourners here and that God has made us for a better city. Have we taken on the customs of the culture around us? Are there ways that we are telling God what to bless, trying to force his hand against his will, just as Joseph did to Jacob? Perhaps we are trying to force God to bless this or that political party, this or that social platform, and so place our faith and expectations upon something besides God. If God can bless his people with a message of hope on the cusp of 400 years of harsh suffering, can he do the same for us, whatever comes, be it good or be it bad? Absolutely. He is God Almighty, and whatever happens, we are not abandoned, as Sartre would have it. Israel, by its own efforts, never could have delivered itself from the military power of Egypt. If all they had was what they could do, then they would be subject to Sartre's despair, they'd have no hope, and there would have been no exodus. But contra Sartre, we are never abandoned by God. In the words of the Belgic Confession, we believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious heavenly Father. And so the two great alternatives are either Sartre or the great shepherd. Either we are abandoned by a non-existent God and so lose all proper sense of hope, or we are watched over with the fatherly care of our great and gracious God. Yes, our years here may be few and evil, but even then, God is guiding us. We know that we are made for another country. But what does this mean exactly, and, and how does God bring it about? Well, as important as Jacob's blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh is, there's actually a more important blessing, and that's the blessing of Judah. Remember, uh, in Genesis 29, Leah names her fourth child Judah. And she does it because this time she's not seeking to earn the approval of her husband Jacob, but she's praising the Lord. And the name Judah itself means praise. Yet, 
here is how Jacob begins the blessing of Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Well, remember that this name itself denotes that, that only God himself rightly deserves our highest praise. But if that's the case, why would he say this? Why would he give him a blessing that focuses on the praise that Judah himself would receive from his brothers? Wouldn't that take away the significance of Judah's name that our highest praise should be directed to God alone? not to people like Judah and his heirs? Well, that would be the case if it was not for Judah's very greatest heir, Christ Jesus. Because Christ is God the Son become human. Christ is both the God of the sons of Jacob, and Christ is also their very brother. When the household of Jacob praises Christ, they are praising the Lord himself. And so God, the God of Jacob, he not only orchestrates all of history, but he enters into history to deliver us. And so what does this blessing mean? It means that one day God will come to us as our brother. And what will he do? Well, the blessing tells us that he will conquer the enemies of God and he will usher in an age of abundance. We see this in the imagery. He will tie the donkey to the vine, not worrying that the animal will eat away at the harvest. Garments will be washed in wine, showing that water, sorry, that wine is just as plentiful as water. His eyes will be darker than wine. His teeth will be whiter than milk. This shows the abundance of wine and milk so much so that it's coloring his eyes, that it's coloring his teeth. But how is it that this heir of Judah will conquer enemies and usher in this age of abundance? Well, by way of another break in expectation, in one that's much bigger than merely blessing the younger over the older, God himself will become human and live a life of suffering, and his days will be more evil and fewer than the days of Jacob. He himself will do no evil, and he will experience firsthand all of the trials and tragedies that we experience in this world. He will suffer betrayal, poverty, sickness, hunger, yet at no point will he cease to love God and neighbor perfectly. And despite this perfectly just life, he will experience the wrath of God upon the cross. He will receive the punishment that we ourselves deserve for all the ways that we've tried to force God's hand like Joseph and all the ways we've done evil like Jacob. And in so doing, Christ will defeat God's great enemy, of sin. It's the guilt of sin that separates us from God, and Christ will take this guilt and give us his righteousness. And it's the corruption of sin that poisons our hearts, but Christ will give us his own spirit to begin purifying our hearts. And so Christ defeats sin and reconciles us to God. Christ conquers God's enemies by laying down his life for our sake. Who would expect this? But one day, one day still, Christ will come again. And on that day, he will not come in suffering. He will come in complete victory and in the glory of kingship. He will come and he will set the whole world right. And every act of evil ever committed will be avenged and punished. 
On that day, perfect justice will be realized. On that day, Christ himself will judge each of us for what we have done, and either you yourself will bear the eternal punishment of this most perfect justice, or Christ himself in all of his might will gently stoop down to you and assure you that he himself has already borne your punishment on the cross. This is a God we would never expect and thank God for that. It is by faith and faith alone that he takes this curse and gives us this blessing, and it's by faith alone, as Hebrews tells us, that we enter into this city. The city that we are made for is this very world. It's God's creation, but God's creation wholly restored and perfected. A creation full of abundance where milk and wine and joy flow like water. And most of all, a creation where God dwells with all of his children that he has shepherded through the few and evil days of their life. This all along is the city that he was preparing us for. This is our true homeland. This is our unshakable hope. This is where we must bury our bones and where we will be raised to new life in the resurrection. As Revelation 21 tells us, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them, be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let us pray. God, our Father, thank you that our, you are our good shepherd. Thank you that you orchestrate all of history. And thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to enter history. Thank you that this is the unshakable hope that we have to look forward to. Thank you, Father God. Give us grateful hearts with a deep trust in you and what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do for your people. In Christ's name we pray, amen.